series is sponsored by the British Army Innovation Team. This team is set up to encourage and facilitate innovation across the Army and supports wider defence initiatives too. One of their projects, the Army Battle Lab, is due to open this year in the southwest of England. If you would like further information about this project, why not get in touch directly with the team via the show notes? Welcome to this Wavel Room podcast series, which focuses on Defence's language of change. This series seeks to explore some of the key ideas about change. What does it actually mean to innovate? Are we less adaptive and agile than in the past? What does it mean to empower? And most importantly, why is any of this different from what has gone before? This series aims to understand what we mean by some of those defence buzzwords we keep hearing over and over again. Over the next few weeks, look forward to hearing from a whole host of different people from the military, the academic world, industry and also the sporting world to understand their views on this language of change, which has dominated military conversations for decades. On this week's podcast, we welcome Brigadier James Cook, who currently heads up the Army's programme Castle, which is responsible for exploring the future of talent management. With over 20 years experience in the Army, Brigadier James has commanded up to unit level, held several roles in the Army's personnel centre and worked in the Army's concepts team. He is currently the Vice Chairman of the Army Rugby Union and was awarded an OBE for his services to Army Sport. Brigadier James has also recently completed his PhD, which explored the British Army's transformation during the First World War. Brigadier James, welcome. And we're going to start with the same question that we ask all of our guests. Defence is awash with buzzwords. If you had to advocate for one buzzword, what would it be and why? So it's a great opening question, isn't it? And I think I'm going to plough in with the biggest of them all, transformation. And I think we use transformation so carelessly in the army and wider defence, but it's such a good word. And I just have concerns we don't really understand what it is. I have a lot of time for transformation when we define it. So I look at transformation as a change across the moral, conceptual and physical components of fighting power. If you change those three in a thing, then you've absolutely transformed something. And if you don't, you haven't. And we mustn't confuse transformation with change. Uh, you know, academia and mind research goes further. If you uh, change a concept, that's actually adoption of something. If you change something that's physical, you know, a new tank, that's probably modernization. If you change its culture, that's the, you know, the moral component is a reflection of its culture. But it's only if you change its moral, conceptual and physical that you actually make transformation. So it's a great word when we use it properly. And I think a lot of time defense use it when that what they actually mean is change. But if you actually understand what transformation is and do it completely across moral, conceptual, physical, then that's when you make a real difference. And we might discuss later about how you make a real difference and when it does and doesn't go you know, right or wrong. Well, it goes right when you do all three components of fighting power. And it goes wrong when you only do one, like you just buy a new bit of kit, but you don't think about the moral component or how you're going to employ it. So I can't claim that as my own grand idea, but that's where my research has taken me in academia and some really brilliant people like Stuart Griffin from the Defence Academy has written on it brilliantly. And you can read that on the Defence in Depth webpage, I know. But I think that's the word we really need to jump on, transformation, and just just remind ourselves what it really means. In that case, sir, so when my mind's racing now trying to think, what was the last trans, when was the last time the British Army had a transformation to you know, all three components of fighting power? Well, I think it was, I think the obvious one is back uh, when the CGS was General Bagnall in 89, mm. when he said, we're going to fight in a armoured 
formation rather than a mechanized, we're going to deliver a whole new set of equipment that some of which is in existence today. And also there was, to a degree, uh, a moral reset in values and standards, pay and rewards, and an intellectual approach. So, so I'd be the first to admit, it's really hard to deliver an overarching transformation. And it depends on which level you look at. But Bagnall absolutely did it. And that's a few years ago. But I'd say we might be about to do it again. It doesn't happen very often. You know, the Americans did it post-Vietnam. You know, in 1973, the American army was a difficult place. By the time they deliver airland battle in the 80s, it's the preeminent army in the world. You know, it's the hegemon. It really is. So they did it then, and that was very much a moral, conceptual, physical. So it doesn't happen often, but when it does, it really matters. If you dial that down a level, you can get transformation in programs such as Castle. You can get them in individual things, and innovation teams can deliver parts of. But true transformation, yeah, it's a big thing. Yeah, absolutely huge. And I, and I guess you, I mean, you, you hinted there that you think we might be on on the edge of, of needing to, to do that. Is that because, is that to do with the, the program that you're part of or is that to do with you know, the emerging domains that we have now? Is that what, what, makes, you, what makes you think we're, we're approaching a, a need for a transformational change? Well, I think the need has been there for some time. I think what Castle is doing will give us the more component change about how we look after our people, you know, how we articulate they're important to us. I think there is some very good work in terms of some new technology coming on. And I think the bit that will really make it work is there's a new way of fighting, uh, a new conceptual thought about integrating our teams, about being more dispersed, et cetera. Now, again, that's not my area of expertise, uh, not why I'm here today. But those three things together, all of a sudden you start looking at it again. When we look back, that will be an inflection point and a change. You know, the American Joint Chiefs have been talking about it. The American Chief of Army said it. Our CGS has said it. Our, the Chief of Defense has said it. I think where we struggle with transformation is we think it'll be there tomorrow. It's the next day. No, no, no. It, it takes time. But we will look back in 10 years' time going, do you know what? Beginning of the, you know, the 20s, that's when it was happening. Yeah. I mean, I suppose if we go back and look at the Bagnall changes you talked about earlier, they, they took a long time to come in, right? Or yeah, yeah. such change, such yeah. transformation, I should say. Yeah. And that's that's a really good point, isn't it? Because we might come on to it later about people want it overnight. You, you can't get it overnight, but you can you can see it happening over a period of five to ten years. And you say Bagnall was only a CGS for four and a half years, I say I think. But by the time his reforms come through, we were a very different army. Well, so you talked about Castle during your, our intro and just in the conversation so far. So do you want to expand on that? What is it uh, and why is what it's trying to do important? Fundamentally, Castle is reimagining army careers and it's transforming them. It's there about maximising everybody's talent, not just the talented. And if I had to give you some headlines, it's about giving our people greater choice. And at the same time, giving our people greater choice, giving the army more flexibility. Uh, that doesn't mean people get ultimate choice. They just get more choices. But also, if we uh, understand our army better and what it's good at individually and then employ it at what it's good at, we can actually get more flexibility for the army as well. So it's more choice for the people, more flexibility for the army. And in many respects, matching our careers to the 21st century demands, that that's it. If I may expand on it a bit, is a, a lot of our people systems sort of are born in the 1960s, 70s, for good reason, because the army in many respects hasn't changed. But if you think of the transformation we've just discussed coming, we, we've got to give a career talent management system that now 
gives far more credit to people's families, spousal employment, child's education, parental care, mental health, in a way that 20th century approaches just didn't have to. And they were right at the time. But now we just got to give more consideration there. We all know that the majority of our serving personnel, their significant other, has a good career. So we've just got to make ourselves a system that we're happy with where that career can be equally as important and people can make informed choices rather than having choices forced upon them, in which case it's not. Sounds like some of those things are going to be quite difficult to deliver. It, informed choice, but also meeting the you know the needs of the army. There's, there's going to be a tension there, isn't there? I think there's always going to be a tension. There's always going to be, because we get into the, the MS binding principle of the needs of the army come first and you are close second. And this is, th- that won't change. But the gap between the needs of the army and you are close second is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. I guess in 95 when I joined, it was quite a big gap. And now it's closed considerably. I, I think we are going to close that gap almost, it's imperceptibly close. But the needs of the army will still come first. But then we get into that lovely discussion of, you know, many of our senior officers have said that you're not in the army, you are the army. And it doesn't take much intellect to understand, well, if we are the army, then our needs come first and we get into a circular argument. Well, no, the needs when we need to send you somewhere that has to happen. But if we get it right, we can get really close to both sides of the argument here, having the outcomes they want. And, and yes, it's difficult, but it's absolutely possible because... We have got a thing called the Army Talent Framework, which is going to define every appointment in the Army and tell you what it is and what you need to do to be good at it and the skills you need. And at the same time, we're going to give everybody in the Army, regular reserve, a skills passport that says this is what you can do and this is how well you can do it. And if you do that, it's pretty obvious you can start matching them up. And you can match them up in terms of, well, actually, fact, I need someone who can do blah, 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 and I've got this person who can do that. That's a really good fit. And that makes career and talent management so much easier because all of a sudden you've got a metric. All of a sudden you've got some facts and figures and you can do some really clever things. You can deliberately align people who have got the perfect knowledge, skills, experience, behaviors to a job. Or you can deliberately misalign someone who's got a lot of it, but not all. But you go, but by giving them, they'll develop it. And therefore, they'll get even better. So absolutely, the challenge is vast and, and hence why Programme Castle has been here a couple of years and got a couple more years to go. But if you start quantifying what we do and other parts of the programme, it becomes a lot easier. It will never be a perfect system. But the Army Talent Framework, which we've been going for nine months now and got another couple of years to go, and we've now got an industry partner in to come and help us with, we've never done that before, ever. And when it's finished we will have the ability to quantify things in a way that a simple algorithm will help us make a huge difference to talent management. So John Boyd famously said, people, minds and technology in that order. Do you think the army gets the balance right? And how does your current team seek to address this balance? So I think John Boyd was spot on. I can't give such a good answer. So the easy part is, is we are addressing it by continuously talking to the field army. We've done over 3,000 interviews, and I think we've done over 40 focus groups. And we did a survey last summer, which got 7,500 respondents, mostly junior soldiers. So a lot of what Carter's doing is not senior officer ideas. This is what do the people want? And then we have to work out how we can realize it. So... Uh, that's how we're going about it. And what that's leading us to is it's all about the people. It's all about people. I think it's hard to split the people and the minds personally, but it's people, people, people. If we get our talent management system right, if we get the length of time in each appointment, if we get the professional education right, if we address how we train people, and then we broadly up 
everybody's intellect in the armed forces, from the most junior soldier to the most senior officer, will be a better army for it. And at the same time, we don't forget about mental capacity, mental health, supporting the family that supports you, then actually, if we focus on our people, we undoubtedly will continue to be a world leading army as we are now. And let's let's not forget, it's it's our people that count. It's our people that give us the intellectual edge that other nations would like to have. We spend more than the vast majority of nations in terms of attracting you, recruiting you, training you, educating you, and keeping you. And even though it's not a perfect system, my goodness, we invest. And if you want a real example of how we invest and the intellectual curiosity, well, how about those brilliant people who run things like the Wavel Room or the Army Leader or who contribute to blogs? You know, this shows our intellectual edge and the curiosity uh, and the Salt Majors do the same things. So I think it, Boyd was right, but he was right at the beginning. It's people. An excellent, smooth, smooth compliment there. Thanks very much, sir. But, That's uh, right. I, I hope you like that. <laughs> but I mean it. Um, I really mean it. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you. But do you think we get that balance of investment right across our people? So we've certainly had people right on the Wavel Room that, you know, an awful lot of the investment is focused too much on the officer corps. In your opinion, is that correct? Is it focused too much on the officer corps? And is there more that we could do to focus on everybody? So I'm, I'm going to have to cop out because I just don't know how you quantify the effort that the leadership training we give to our NCOs is still more than the vast majority of other Western armies and mm. certainly our adversaries. Our officer education is is excellent. It's, it's as good as it gets in any army. Maybe the American army have, have could challenge us. I can say, and this is promising jam tomorrow, is that we are in the midst of a review of how we educate our people and it is focused at our NCOs. That is where we're saying we can do more, we can do better, and we can up our intellectual game. And we're, and we're doing it for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because who doesn't want to be educated and be better at what they do? Uh, because it's good in the service now, but it's also good for when you leave the armed forces and we all leave at some stage. And it's also a really good way of rewarding people to say, look, we really value what you do. Here's more education. You know, Our terms of service and our pay and pensions are, are really good, but we're not and we're not changing that. But to give people access to higher education throughout your career and it not to be bounded by rank, that's the direction Castle's traveling in. And I think that's going to be popular and I think it's going to be affordable and credible. And I think we have a cohort of soldier scholars and not necessarily just soldier scholars, but inquisitive soldiers who really want to take the next step. I have been reading a BA ONS uh, thesis from an AGC corporal who happens to be foreign Commonwealth intake, and I'm blown away by the intellect in it. And that's just the one I was reading this weekend. So we've got, an, we've got plenty, we can do a lot more. And I think we might just see a bit more focus on NCOs in the future, because I think there's an opportunity there. Sounds like yeah, I think we already have you've identified it. But we 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 have a gap between the the quality of our senior NCOs and junior NCOs and that of uh, our peers. And so I think there's opportunity there to expand that even further. Yeah, yeah, I think there is. I, I think we tend to focus our NCOs on leadership skills and technical training, and we'd understand why we do that. I think there's another bit which is just general intelligence and intellect. That would just mean, and, and it's the same for no matter what rank you are. If if we if we try and in help you with your intellectual development, you'll understand context better. You'll understand risk better. You'll you'll understand how just things fit together better, which just means that then your leadership and your training mean more. 
So it's a really good foundation. I, I can see uh, a gentle nudge away from training people to do things towards educating people for the wider world in the next five, 10 years, because that's where society is going. Uh, and it's not that we're following, but we should reflect. And I think that will make for even smarter soldiers and, and probably officers as well. Awful lot of change coming. So that moves me on to my next question. It feels and potentially looks like the army is struggling to change at the moment. There are numerous change programs ongoing, and it has been said in the past that the army is addicted to change. Is this a bad thing? And what more could we do to start discussing change in a more positive light? I think sometimes we're guilty of saying, asking the really blunt question of, do you like change? And people's natural reaction is to cross around them, no. But then when they step back and think about it, it's like, well, yeah, it's not as bad as standing still and being left behind. We, we know the world is continuously changing around us, so we can't stand still. In terms of narrative, um, I think, for instance, explaining what transformation is in terms of adaption, modernization, and cultural change might help. We're pretty clumsy, and we use different words when they mean different things. But I don't think we have to convince many people the need to change because our adversaries are changing and the pressure on us is changing. Therefore, we've got to react. If you don't react to change and all of a sudden you start losing games, even though you've got more talent, you've got to get their head. And I think we shouldn't be frightened of the rate of change either. It's a good thing. Absolutely. And what's interesting is, and this links into my next question, but we, we change in conflict all of the time. In fact, if we didn't change, we would die we'd lose and those those ball games are, are far more serious when we're when we're on operations so noting your phd research is this something that you've you've come across before that we are much better at adapting in conflict than out of conflict so it feels like that but again it's it's hard to actually quantify it but the significant difference in conflict is motivation isn't it so so my own research looked at an army transforming and i used the western front of the first world war you know the motivation in those days for national survival and the good of the country was more significant than it had ever been before so we threw resource at it in a way we could never imagine in terms of blood and treasure now of course the context today is very different and modern warfare would never have that degree of sacrifice because governments and people couldn't take it but it was a very different time but it's about motivation. I, I think there's a often misused example of the evolution of the tank in the First World War, that it's the most brilliant innovation story. Well, it, it is, but for, all for the wrong, but for the wrong reasons. The reason the tank is a good example is because when the Admiralty set up the landship committee with the army, and it was of course a majority with engineers and maritime engineers who were on that committee, they were given effectively a blank sheet of paper and whatever resource they liked in order to innovate and in order to change. But what's really interesting, of course, is the problem they were set was, we need to cross boggy ground full of barbed wire. I need you to make a track laying system so we can move infantry across scope and ground. That was the requirement. And hence you have this sort of, I'm gonna lay a track down and people are gonna walk on it, similar to how what the Royal Engineers might do today in difficult terrain. It was only that they then realized that, well, to do that, I can't lay a whole track, I need to put tracks on either side and it'll smooth the ground down, et cetera, et cetera. And then we had this lovely confluence of circumstance that the British Navy had just not had their dreadnought order fulfilled, but had already purchased some six pounder guns. And it's an admiralty board doing this. And you can see in the minutes from the cabinet office of this sort of dawning realization of we're making this land ship that's going to crush wire. We've got all these spare six pounder naval guns. 
let's put them on the side of the tank. And all of a sudden, the tank goes from being a mobility platform, which is all it was ever designed to be, to being a fire, a mobility platform. And the innovation comes from, actually, it's the firing bit that's really useful, not just the mobility bit. And that comes brilliantly when it gets in the hands of the user, not the designer. The designer's almost guilty of putting the guns on because we had them spare, let's chuck them on. Then no one had to pay for them sort of thing. Then how we employ it. So there's a very you know hackneyed story about innovation and adaptation. And to be honest, it's about the motivation because we could do that because we said, have as much money as you like and you haven't got ultimate time, but you've got a couple of years to crack it. But we also had that, you know, we are losing lives and we need to change and it should be a technology that helps us. But here's the real kicker. There was a technology came in. What really made it win was the concept of how they're going to use it and how they integrated it with aircraft, how they integrated it with artillery. And it was the concept of how they fought on the Western Front that changed fundamentally from what had looked pretty Napoleonic on the Western Front in 1916, which by 1918 and Combray, for instance, in 1917, looks like combined arms warfare. It was the new idea, the new way of warfare, the concept that actually led to success. But it needs these sort of clunky political innovation stories to happen. And it needs the Royal Navy to have some bare six pounder guns to put them on the side of this mobility platform that all of a sudden breeds a new thing. So a long answer to a very good question. We shouldn't be afraid to change. We shouldn't rush it. But it's all about the motivation and how much resource you're going to put at it. The, the contrary to that, of course, is, is you can't innovate yourself out of a problem unless you have a lot of resource. And if we have been guilty recently of misaligning innovation, it's thinking it's a cheaper way of doing things. History and industry shows us it's not a cheap way of doing things. It's a good way, but it's not cheap. Yeah, well, I mean, as you identified, there's a huge amount of investment that went into 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 that particular innovation we just talked about. And I, I guess that, you know, the, the staff officer in me is thinking, well, that's just the, the defense lines of development, essentially, that you've got to make sure that your innovation crosses all of those. Otherwise, it's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, it, it, you, you, have to, you have to go across the D-Lods. But the bit that should lead, the bit that you should do first is, how are we going to do a different thing? How are we going to fight in a new way? You've got to have a concept of warfare. Once you've got a concept of warfare, actually what you can do is go, right, what do we got? How are we going to use it? Well, let's use it like this. And then eventually you can say, well, do you know what? We could buy some new things. But you've got to have your concept up front, not your equipment up front. I'm not saying we're guilty of doing that, but sometimes we might have done. Have an understanding of how you're going to fight and also why, because the enemy or adversary is doing this thing. Have that and adapt. And that reflects on cast as well. What do we need from our people? What is society producing for us? Where can we get them from? What will excite them and retain them? Right, let's develop a talent management system that reflects that and actually complements that. We have this ridiculous euphemism that the millennials and to a degree Generation Z want portfolio careers that bounce through. Well, some do, but a lot who join the institutions like the army don't. They want some sort of, you know, they want regular employment. They want a career. But we can give them a bit of both because we can actively say, but we're going to move you from this part of the army to that part and we're promote you and give you more response. And we can give you that portfolio career within the army. So if we understand that and what drives and motivates people, we can. And if they want, prof you know, continuous professional development, we can add that in there as well and excite them. And we can communicate to them digitally in a way that's intuitive to them. And all of a sudden, we're producing a career and talent plan that looks really good for people born since 2000. We talked earlier about pace and as wanting, you know, wanting transformation overnight. And the army has, you know, 
you could say that the army is addicted to doing things at pace. We have innovation teams. The defense has accelerators. We, we want to do things quickly, maybe because we're all impatient people. How does the pace of change align to what you're doing in your current role in, in the Castle team? So I think it's a really insightful question. And to me, it's about getting the pace right. It's neither too fast or too slow. And it's changing quick enough to satisfy that we are changing so you can see it, but slow enough that you can keep take people with you. In career and talent management, one of the travesties of life is that most people don't engage with their own careers. They just let them happen. So not only have we got to make change, but we've got to get people to engage with their careers. You know, if I asked your listeners, what is the JSP that defines all talent management? I wonder how many of them know it's 757. If I asked them where, where they would get the doctrine or the practice and precedent for when they're qualified for a promotion and how quickly they promote, I wonder if they'd know where to look on the Army Personnel webpage. So, so it's about information at a pace that everybody will happily take. And we're digitalizing that. And we're going to put a lot of this onto your mobile phone this summer. Uh, and a lot of information, if you want to download our app through the My Career and My Army series, it'll be there for you instant access you can get your you'll be able to get your report on your mobile phone all your reports and job opportunities and when boards run and jobs lists and that will be there this summer but in order to do that we have to do it at the right pace uh, now castle's blessed with a fantastic engagement and communications team headed up by, by a brilliant civil servant and it's about that steady flow of information so people buy into it and see the change but i'm not suggesting it's easy because to some people it look too fast and to other people it look a bit slow. And I can't tell you we're getting it right. I think we're getting it right. But it's about that. But I don't want to be suckered by going faster than we should. Because if you go too fast, people either won't keep up or they'll fall off or we'll overtake them. And rushing change is probably one of the easiest ways to get it wrong. Because all of a sudden we've done stuff and people haven't followed the logic and don't like it. And if they don't like it, they won't do it. So momentum rather than speed. Absolutely. That's that's the answer I should have given. Momentum rather than speed. No, <laughs> but you're quite right. You're quite right. Rushing this achieves very little. Uh, and we don't have to rush it. We just have to get it right because we won't have a second chance to get it right. It's too important to get wrong first time. And Castle's very lucky. We're, we're blessed with uh, a very strong programmatic approach, which most people would make them feel slightly queasy. But this means that we have a, a board of two-star members and non-executives who, you know, check our work. What we do goes to the principal personnel officer, who is the deputy chief of general staff. That's how important what we do is, and that's how seriously it's taken. So if it goes through those checks and balances, we know we're delivering the right thing, and you can't rush that. But I really like your point. It's about momentum. Momentum is a is a great a great little buzzword to move us on to the next question. We're talking about how defence articulates change, and you know, anyone who's do on any staff course will know that we love a buzzword, and we opened asking you about buzzwords. But when it comes to the language challenge for Program Castle, have you had any had any challenges in articulating your work, especially as it sounds like you've got people from all sorts of different backgrounds working on the program who might be talking to each other in different languages, not. Yeah, not actual languages, but business language versus military language. So Castle is blessed with a brilliantly whole force team, some very talented civil servants, regular reserve, FGRS, and a new commercial contractor. And what's so good about that is it's cognitively diverse. 
It's also quite diverse in gender, but it could be it could be even more diverse. The language we use has a business acumen to it because we are trying to be programmatically true. And again, I know that's not very sound exciting, but when you're delivering so much, you've got to keep it straight. Uh, so our language is one of P3M, and that's the right thing to do when you're trying to make such a huge transformation. Uh, I should sort of caveat this. I was about to say if Castle, no, when Castle delivers its transformational change, and it will be transformational, it'll be the biggest cultural impact on the army for many, many years. Hence, it has to have this really deep-rooted P3M approach. You know, we will do some significant things with our colleagues in the Army Personnel Centre, which will fundamentally challenge how we think about our careers and manage them. And in that respect, You've got to keep it clear and a business approach makes sense when you've got so many stakeholders. And of course, we're beholden on the centre, the Ministry of Defence, specifically the Chief of Defence People and his team to support, articulate and, and run some of our pro projects. So it has to talk into his team and they use a very strong programmatic approach. So that's our language. And if I was going to put one more caveat on it, it's clear and simple language. But at the moment, it's not too much of a challenge. That's coming quite well. And for those in the team like myself who were, who were not P3M conversant, it's not difficult. It's just a way of doing things that actually I think a lot of the army could really benefit from. So genuinely useful following that system. Genuinely useful. So when I heard I was coming to Program Castle, and I was delighted, of course, I then had this worry beat about, right, P3M, P3M, what does that stand for? But it's not difficult, but it's a, it is a reference system as a way of working that means you don't trip yourself up, you don't write checks you can't cash. Uh, for instance, we're often being asked to accelerate, ironically, parts of our program and take them first. Well, under a P3M approach, the first thing you do is, fine, have we got the resource? And if we have, what are we going to decelerate? Whereas I think without that, you might go, yeah, we'll do that now. We'll do it now. We'll run, we'll run. And then, of course, what you get is you can't do it all and something suffers. So that's our language. And I would commend it to any part of any organization if they want to keep themselves true to their actual purpose. Some of these these changes you're talking about might have some quite emotive outputs. So on the Wavell Room, for example, we have we regularly run an article about changing the rank structure in the army mm. and simplifying it, re removing a few levels of ranks because the author believes that they're not really necessary and they make things too complicated. And that always gets uh, an emotive response. So some of the change, and that's just what we call stuff. Right. So there's going to be some significant changes that some people might find quite difficult to deal with. How, how's Programme Castle going to, going to withstand that? By steady and gentle communication, by taking a cohort with us. I mean, we speak to many units and you know, in most of the presentations I give, I will speak for no more than a third of the time because I really want the questions to understand what the cohort's thinking about. And ironically, it, you know, sometimes because it's hard to see the whole the whole entirety of castle people latch onto tiny things people latch onto 360 reporting we want 360 reporting we want to be, and you can't look at minutes isolation you've got to look at the whole piece 360 reporting is is a wonderful idea that is broadly undeliverable for instance and I'm, you may ask me to expand on that later so in, in terms of taking us forward and convincing people it's those gentle steps that everybody understands and why it's important for them. We should also, of course, understand that Castle is looking after a soldier once they've joined and come out of phase two training up to our senior generals. That's a broad cohort in terms of age, experience, and what we need from them. And it's hard to focus on them all. 
we, we don't focus more. We focus specifically at two places. For soldiers, we focus at corporals as they turn to sergeants. And for officers, we focus at captains as they turn to majors. Those parts of our careers. Because I think that's the place where we can really identify talent and we know what it is. And it's also where we bleed a lot of talent. Naturally, people leave because they've done their 10, 12 years. But that's the place we really want to make sure we're looking for to make sure we're satisfying giving those, those cohorts everything we possibly can as a reason to stay and to motivate them. Notwithstanding that the structure means we need some people to leave, but we want to make sure we're holding on to the people that are going to do the best for our soldiers. So you did you you did mention reports and three sixty mm. reporting. I, that's an interesting one. Three sixty. I mean, for me personally, I think it's a it's a good personal development tool, but not necessarily something that you can use to structure career postings off. Uh, but everybody has an opinion on reports. Yeah. How, so how are they going to change, or are they going to change? Uh, so my caveat is, is reports aren't really part of Castle. So the way we're reported on and our performance each year is very much part of the military secretary's business, the Army Personnel Centre. And whilst we're engaged, that's not a focus for us. I think the reporting system is as good as we can make it. And whilst people give it a good kicking most weeks, no one's yet come to us with a way they can make it better. I would say it's very expensive in time and resource, but in terms of a way of codifying actions, it's pretty good. The greatest travesty with our reporting system, and this might be a headline for you, is that people genuinely don't engage with it. I've written pieces before, you'll see them on the Army Leader about how to engage with your report each year, which tells you the 12 steps to ensure you get a report that reflects your talent and your potential. And it was when it was first published, it was seen as sort of almost, you know, by the Messiah. It wasn't. It was just a very simple approach to career management. And yet people still don't either agree with it, which is fine, or do it. And hence they get problems in the year when they get a report that says it doesn't reflect on me, to which I would say as a career manager of, of four years of, well, did you engage? There's a lovely euphemism of, you know, my, my boss doesn't know me. Okay. Well, did you put yourself in front of them? Did you do something to address that? If you did and they don't know you, well, that's something. But if you didn't, then that's you. It's your report. It's your career. You should do something. So the biggest change we need to make for reporting is for people to engage with it and to understand what's good and what's not good and how to be recognised and to understand that people who are, who are in the chain of command above them really don't buy presenteeism. It's not a thing. Being at the desk for long hours doesn't achieve that. It's not what's important to your commanders. It's about output and the quality of that output, for instance. And I don't think I've met a senior leader who doesn't think that. But in terms of reporting itself, I mentioned earlier about 360. You know, 360 is is a tool I get hit on Twitter with all the time about we must stomp out toxic leaders and we can only do it with 360. Well, there's a couple of things wrong with that statement. Firstly, most people's definition of a toxic leader isn't toxic at all. It's just a bad leader. And there are some. There are, by definition, very few toxic leaders in society, let alone the army. And of course, the great, euphemi- the, the great expression is, is if a toxic leader is someone who really doesn't care, if you gave them a 360 report about their behavior, they really wouldn't care. So so why do you think that's going to solve it? I hope that's you giggling because it's the truth, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. Yeah. yeah. Telling someone with no emotional intelligence, they have no emotional intelligence, it just doesn't get you anywhere. The other thing about 360 reporting is that, of course, is unless you put some governance behind it, people can write some really dumb things. And the reason we have so much governance behind the reporting system at the moment is because there are some things you quite rightly can't say about people because they're derogatory, deflammatory, or just illegal. So unless you put that governance around it, it's really hard to make it useful and not spiteful. 
Now, you're probably aware that 180 reporting is being launched later this month and you'll see it published and it'll be out there, endorsed, try service and a really good step into this business. But it's an opportunity to see how it works and it is not particularly governed on purpose, but let's see how it flies. But when we come back to the essence of your question about the reporting system is, Castle's not particularly touching that. Castle is actually addressing giving you more information to help your career management with a project called individual aptitude testing. And individual aptitude testing will be a series of assessments online later this year that are absolutely voluntary. And you and I or anyone listening to this can go online at that stage and take some assessments about them and only they get the results. So if they go and take an intellect assessment later this year, What's really clever about it is you can then compare your results with anybody else in the army you wish to, not by name, but by rank or by gender or by cap badge. So if you're a young corporal who's a supplier in the Royal Logistic Corps listening to this and you go, right, let me see, you can take that intellect test and then compare yourself against every other corporal in the RLC. Go, right, where do I sit in, in terms of intellect? And if it says you sit in the top 2%, it's like, wow, that's good. If it says in the bottom 2%, it's like, right context. But what will also happen is eventually that will lead to ways of helping you with that. Where it gets really good for the reporting system is that once we build this up, you'll be able to take assessments for intellect, emotion, intelligence, mental agility, empathy, etc. And imagine that slightly scruffier, slightly, you know, the, the person you, you glance by who works in the stores in your battalion, who takes some of those assessments, which supports our reporting system. And it comes out as saying this individual has huge emotional intelligence and empathy and real mental agility equals you should be an instructor at Purbright. And all of a sudden there's an evidence that individual can take to the chain of command and go, look, you know, I'm in the top 5% for these things. This means I'd be a great instructor. And the chain of command might look at that person and go, but you're you know, scruffy and we don't really know much about you and we'd never have looked at you. And all of a sudden there's some evidence and goes, but across my cohort of 4,000 people, I'm in the top 5%. And that's how we help the reporting system by putting some objective analysis into talent management. That doesn't go into report. It's still for the individual to manage. But all of a sudden, you and I can start seeing where we sit in a spectrum of talent and then reacting to it. And it can say, you're really good at detail. You're really good at understanding this complexity. You really should be a programmer in capability development or in innovation or you're rubbish at detail, but you're great at ideas, go into the strategic space, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the way we help talent management and career management is not by addressing the reporting system, but it's about making sure individuals know exactly what they're good at, and then they can make really good career decisions with, with more information. Really so, long answer. Sorry about that. No, but, it, but, it, but it, an interesting one. So, so parts of that sound similar to a kind of a Myers, is it Myers-Briggs? The, so the Myers-Briggs is, yeah, Myers-Briggs looks at personality types and it's something, we, you know, we are looking into a similar space. The problem with Myers-Briggs, and it's very good, is it takes a lot of debriefing to get the most from it. And if you do a Myers-Briggs personality, uh, apart from it taking 40 minutes of your time to do, what you then need is 90 minutes of an occupational psychologist to explain it to you to get the best from it. Uh, and without it, it's a bit dumb, but with it, it's very empowering. But we are not going to be giving 90-minute occupational psychologist debriefs to 100,000 people in the army. But what we can do is give you enough information to go, this is where I sit in these things, and these add up to this. I mean, imagine being a Lance Corporal in an infantry battalion who takes a series of assessments and they go, look, you, know, you would probably be really good as a special forces communicator, or you would be really good you know, in, in a planning role, or you would be you know, maybe you'd be really good in what you do. Or as an officer who's sort of reaching out that gap, that jump between captain and major, is it saying, look, 
all of these traits means the Perth career field is for you or ops is for you. And all of a sudden, I think we get a little bit of validity and a little bit of confidence in, no, these are good decisions. I should just stress, we have no intention of making that information available to anybody but the individual. What do they then choose to do with it, that's up to them because it can be really empowering. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it could be a, a useful, I guess, a quick barometer to see where you are, to maybe to see whether you want to attend or, or attempt something. I, I can I can definitely see the utility of that. I can see that people would worry that that would then somehow end up in the chain of command and decisions would be made on them. Uh, and on e- equally, people trying to game it and then show it to their uh, reporting officers and be like, well, look, I scored really high on this test, so you've got to put me forward for that job. So I, I think I can reassure you that firstly is the way it is designed, it is the, you know, the individual logs on as themselves, takes the tests and gets their results. Those results don't go anywhere. There's no algorithm or system to 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 keep them or send them. It's yeah, well, we keep a record of who took what or when, but that's just so that we can there's veracity and people can go, no, I actually really did take it. Mm-hmm. Secondly, the the assessments are abstract, which is really important. So it's not a reflection of prejudice uh, of privilege or upbringing. These are how your mind works. So a lot of this is about shapes and numbers and letter games. It's not about knowing things. It's about assessing your mind. So actually, it doesn't matter how you're educated or your family background. If you've got a good brain, this will find out. So that should give you confidence. And then it really is down to individual to use that information or not. Now, the obvious conclusion is, is if, if, if 100 people take an intelligence test, well, 50 of them by definition are in the bottom half. But that's okay because intelligence, you know, you you don't have to be the top to have a really good career. If you're at the bottom of 10 different tests, well, then that's something. But you're going to be good at something because you wouldn't be in the army if you weren't. And it also leads, which is important, to training opportunities and education. This will all lead to, you should now go and do this. You'd be really good at this. Or in actual fact, you've scored brilliantly here and you've done this in your career. How about access to higher education paid for in the future by the armed forces? So it's also not just an assessment of you, but it's how it develops you. Now, we're not there and we haven't got that part of the, pro- the project fixed yet. But that's what, in my mind, it will lead to, allowing you to intellectually up your game. And whilst we're not going to touch pay and reward in Program Castle because it's just too difficult and I don't think we need to, what we will be looking at is using the aptitude assessments to say, you are a really good candidate for some higher education. And the army would like to resource that for you because you'll be better for it and the army will be better for you having done it. So, sir, I think we'll bring this bring this interview to a conclusion. I've got one more question for you. So, it's ten years in the future. You've you've just retired as uh, chief of the defence staff, and you're looking back, <laughs> looking back at your time in the army, and what what does what does good look like for talent management in ten years' time? So, the the first bit's easy. Actually, it's digitalised. So it doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing, you can pick up your smartphone and you can look at yourself and your your talent passport. You can see your skills, you can see the jobs and it's available to you. Now, all that information is there today, but it's quite opaque to us. It's definitely opaque to junior soldiers. So that's the first thing is digitalized. And we're doing that. The, the career management portal is doing it. You'll, you'll start to be able to download it from this summer. It'll be in the app store and you'll start to get that. That's the first thing. Secondly, I think that Castle has delivered that flexibility and choice where people get the careers they want. And it's not, it's not, you know, we're no longer directed places. It's about you've made a choice. Now we'll never get to Nirvana if everyone gets what they want, but we'll get more choice. And that's going to be good because in outside the armed forces in society, you don't get ultimate flexibility. You can't just rock up and go, I'm going to manage McDonald's tomorrow. Or I'm going to go into, you know, you, you still got to compete. So I think that's going to be there. 
I think that's also going to lead us to a, a happier cohort of people who are more satisfied because they know their choices align with their families and the people they rely upon and people they care for. And that will help retain them. I think we're going to have in 10 years time upped the broad intellect of the army by this education focus that means everybody, no matter what rank you are, as well as training you for the job you need to do, how to change that wheel, how to service that vehicle. We're also going to give you an, an education lift, which means that when you return into society, you'll be better for it and society will be better for it. I think that will also help us attract broader from society because there'd be even more opportunity. I think we'll do a lot better work to support the the smaller, the minorities in the army uh, in terms of the cohorts that just are not as big as they should be because we'll make policies that are just easier to live with. I think particularly female talent uh, because we'll make timing of courses far more individual as opposed to you will do it at this stage or that so people can manage their careers and their families or whoever of course, that's not gender specific, whoever looking after the family. And I suppose lastly, and this is the real wish, is people will be able to engage with their careers and they'll want to engage with their careers and they'll get the career they want and they deserve. Not everybody deserves, not deserves, not everybody gets the same career because not everybody's as talented, but we'll be able to squeeze every last drop of talent out of everybody because they'll know how the system works, they'll be able to access it and they'll have a career that if if you know, they're lucky, it would be as good as yours and I, because we're having a great time, I think. I certainly love what I do. and I'm particularly lucky to be in this. I'm also lucky to be married to a far more talented officer who keeps me relatively grounded in an easy, accessible way that allows them to have a great time in the armed forces, support their families, and really helps them in society. Sir, thank you very much for your time. Frosty, that's great fun. Thank you. This podcast series is sponsored by the British Army Innovation Team. This team is set up to encourage and facilitate innovation across the Army and supports wider defence initiatives too. One of their projects, the Army Battle Lab, is due to open this year in the southwest of England. If you would like further information about this project, why not get in touch directly with the team via the show notes? Remember to subscribe to The Wavel Room through whoever your podcast provider is and comment and give us a rating too. 